podcast where we talk with musicians and songwriters about the songs and the writing and the playing. This episode is a conversation I was very much looking forward to. Our guests are Harris Passeltiner and Dave Senft, two of the four members of the band Darling Side. We've been big Darling Side fans here at Tell You What HQ for some time, so this one was a treat. The four members of Darling Side met at college in Massachusetts and have been a band for over 10 years. They just released their fourth full-length album, Fish Pond Fish. It is a remarkable record. I've really enjoyed digging into it. As I discussed with Dave and Harris, the way the songs on this one came together was different in several ways from their previous outings. Some of these changes were by design in terms of their songwriting approach, and some by circumstance as the pandemic and quarantine interrupted the recording and production process. The final product here is just wonderful. I have, as usual included portions of the songs we discussed within the episode, but there is just so much going on in many of these songs, I could not do them justice for the brief clip, so I strongly recommend you giving them all a full listen. We also get a chance to talk about Darling Side's approach to live performance. They're one of my favorite live acts out there. If you are familiar with their music, you would likely expect their meticulous and beautiful arrangements to translate well to a live setting, and they certainly do their stage presence and connection with each other and with the audience adds another layer of entertainment and fulfillment to the shows. So for now, purchase and listen to this great record, Fish Pond Fish, as we all look forward to seeing Darling Side and all the other great working musicians at some live shows sometime soon. Quick shout out to Karen Wieson at All Eyes Media and again to Eric Jones at Homestead Artist Management for their help in putting this one together. Very much appreciated. And for now, let's get to it. Here is our Tell You What discussion with Dave and Harris of Darling Side. Dave Harris, welcome to Tell You What the Podcast. Thanks for taking the time to be with us this afternoon. Thank you so much for having us, Mike. I am in Tell You What headquarters in Evanston, Illinois. I was talking to Dave earlier, and I understand you two are not in your home state of Massachusetts. We don't have to disclose where you are, but but we are in three different places, correct? Yeah, that's correct. I'm, I'm actually comfortable saying that I'm down in Austin, Texas right now. <laughs> it sounds comfortable. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty nice weather. <laughs> Yeah, we are both we are both with the in-laws for the holidays. Although actually, Harris is is there for a much longer period of time. You are wintering in Austin, Dave tells me. Harris, uh, that's correct. Yeah, I'm uh, enjoying really nice weather and time with family um, uh, during the pandemic. That's great. There, this is the first time I've done an interview with three people in three different places. But I think if we all cooperate, we should be able to pull this off. So thanks in advance for your cooperation. Um, Let's talk, let's go back in time if we can, as you both think back to your early days. Um, is there music you remember being a part of your home 
your community um, that you remember from your earliest musical memories and maybe as some of that made its way into your creative life currently? Harris, if you want to take this first. Uh, sure, yeah. I actually I started playing classical cello when I was six years old, and wow. um, I was playing um, at the Music Institute of Chicago and um, started playing chamber music at eight years old, um, piano trios in particular, and then orchestral music at um, high school. And um, my brother also played piano, my mom played piano, and so there was always music in the house when I was growing up, and a lot of that traditional classical training ended up changing when I met, well, I, I started to explore new things when I met these guys who are in the band um, when I went off to college and started playing modern music with them. Uh, Dave, how about you? Early days, music in your life? Yeah, I, I, I would say that I was into acapella before it was cool, but I guess <laughs> I don't know if it ever was truly cool. Uh, <laughs> But, um, but I certainly thought it was very cool uh, in high school. Uh, I wasn't in a group. I just, my dad and mom would take me to, um, you know, college acapella competitions. And, and uh, my dad actually emceed some of them because uh, he got really into the community for a little while. And wow. uh, so, yeah, that, that was something I was excited to try in college, uh, having never really taken any lessons in music. Um, you know, I my family all sing and uh, we, we had certain hymns that we sang at family gatherings and that kind of thing. But then, yeah, the getting involved in, in an actual performing group uh, turned out I had pretty uh, extreme performance anxiety, but kind of worked through that over the course of my, um, or some of that uh, in college and, and got to the point where I was just couldn't get enough music and, and was mm-hmm. starting to write songs with uh, some friends. There's a, Williams offers a Williams College offers a singer songwriter course that uh, everyone in the band, everyone in Darlingside did end up taking, although we all took it at different times. Uh, and so that was kind of where I got my start thinking about songwriting and and starting to you know the the, the final exam, if you will, for that class is to play to perform a song uh, that you wrote in front of wow. a live audience of many of your peers, uh, and it's a pretty popular event so uh that was that was really i can't imagine ever performing you know a song that i'd written without that uh that course sort of forcing me to do it and then yeah it just kept being songwriting just kept being a thing that that all of us uh and some other friends of ours at school just kept doing more and more until we got to the point where we said let's just keep doing this after after college ends and we all graduated at different times but you know for a little while there I had graduated, but Harris was still in school, and so we were kind of commuting to see each other and write music together. And I remember we were in Oxford um, when, in Oxford, England, uh, Harris was studying abroad, and I was with Oyan, uh, who was doing a fellowship in Ireland, and we ended up taking a trip to Oxford where uh, Oyan's brother was also there uh, studying with Harris and rooming with Harris, and that was when I remember Harris and I kind of at some point towards the end of that trip uh, sort of did a, a pinky swear kind of thing, like we will make music together uh, after <laughs> school. And uh, and here we are. That c- class story is interesting. Harris, was that your first experience with songwriting also, or had you been doing it before that? 
I had done a few, um, I, I wouldn't call them very strong efforts, but started dabbling in trying to um, create songs from scratch for the first time. Sort of near the end of high school, I was um, picking up acoustic guitar and trying to teach myself to play chords. I think sort of as a foil to the more formal uh, cello training to just kind of have some fun playing an instrument where I actually didn't even know the names of the strings on the guitar if somebody asked me, I was just kind of feeling it um, by ear and um, started to kind of write a few, I would call them sort of emo uh, pop punk songs uh, near the end of uh, high school. But when I started to really think about crafting melodies and song structures and things like that, that was when I met these guys at school and started taking that songwriting course um, okay. and um, trying to write even you know, different different genres of music, things like um, sort of more of singer-songwriter uh, types of songs that could be performed alone and then building out to uh, more songwriting for ensembles. Right. Great. So uh, Dave kind of gave us the story of, of the early, the, 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 the roots, if you will, of, of Darling Side. I want to get into your collaborative process a little bit, if I can. I'm really curious to hear about how the four of you work together. I know it's likely changed over time. You've been to band for, what, 10 years or so, right? Um, but can you talk about your process, uh, first in terms of how the ideas germinate? Are you sitting around a table with a blank page? Are you bringing ideas you have worked on on your own for a while into the group? How are, how are things getting started? We are right to say, uh, or to guess that things have changed over the 10 years that we've been together um, I would say initially coming from a singer-songwriter background uh, and, and and you know all of us having different musical educations of one kind or another um, there was a lot more of one person bringing an idea to the group that was somewhat more fleshed out maybe the lyrics were essentially written by one person and tweaked by the other people. Um, but it was, it was really, I would say we were individuals first. We were kind of individual songwriters first and, and a group second is my, is maybe how I would describe it in retrospect. And that, right. uh, over time, uh, it's become much more that the group is, is primary and, and our individual aesthetics is is uh, subordinate to that and that we you know there's no there's no sense of ownership now of over ideas or uh, i mean there's some you know obviously you you know which ideas you may be submitted and and there's some of that but there's no competitiveness there's no um you know we've just we've we've tried to stay and and grow even more uh kind of radically uh egalitarian in everything we do and and thinking of right. everything is owned by all four of us and and we're all part of getting it there, even if one of us happened to do more of the work for a particular song. And um, and and part of that has been that the germination of the ideas, like you're saying, uh, has become more of a group process. So this time we started things off with a bunch of group exercises that were intended to generate ideas as a group so that we all felt really connected to that initial kernel of an idea. That was for this album. Yeah, and we've done some of that for previous albums, but we were really intentional this time about um, experimenting with some some exercises that would get the lyrics uh, a little bit earlier in the process because we often mm -hmm. write melodies and then uh, 
and then you kind of fit the lyrics to it like a crossword puzzle and you try to make it all fit the timing but uh, we were interested in in doing some writing exercises that that would really generate things from the group brain you know sort of a group consciousness that uh, that involved sort of games of telephone where you would start with um, some prompt and then pass it to the next person and they would write a little free write just you know whatever comes to mind write for 30 minutes straight no form while you were all sitting in the same room uh at some sometimes yes but actually um funny enough we sort of this was before any quarantining or pandemic stuff but we we part of the uh one of the intentions of the exercises that we were doing was so that we could do some more remote writing so it would be you know we'd all be at our own houses and we'd have a 30 minute uh window to write your thing and then pass it to the next person and they would sort of advance it to, you know, if they, if you receive a free write, then your job is to try to turn it into something that's more, more in verse, you know, that has maybe a, a rhyme scheme or just a, a, a rhythmic structure or something like that. And then the next person would try to put a melody to that. Um, you know, like I, I would not have necessarily predicted how successful that was in making me incredibly invested in everything that was generated from that process, because whether I was the one who wrote the melody or whether I had written the free write or even just supplied a one word prompt, you know, whatever it was, I felt really connected to the end product and, and really proud of it. And that's a really important thing when you're playing the songs night after night that you're not getting on stage feeling like, oh, this is Oyan's song or this is my song. Because uh, right. th that, can, that can just get tiring and, and it's just great when you all feel connected to everything you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, running off of what Dave was just saying uh, we would often take those various writing exercises and dump them all into a shared document. Um, in particular, it's we have it in the Google universe in a Google Doc, and we would basically write down all of the words that came from passing these ideas around into sort of one shared sheet of paper. And then anybody at a later date would be able to go in and access that shared document and lift lines from it and reconfigure things. And sometimes it would be this sort of Frankensteining of a bunch of different uh, bits and pieces uh, that have been written into this document, um, sometimes over the course of months of time. And uh, by the end, what's really nice is diving back into those documents. Sometimes you don't even know who wrote what line when. Right. It's just sort of a, a community, I, I would almost call it like a a group brain dump or something. It's like our shared consciousness, and you can tap into that anytime and not worry about who owns this, who owns that, who started it, who ended it. It's just sort of there for the taking and for the building. Um, and the same thing's true from a, a melodic standpoint. Like we took our various voice memos, you know, somebody just singing into an iPhone, a little idea maybe for a bridge motif or um, for a verse tune or a chorus idea and just take all those voice memos and dump them into folders where people can then go and mine them at a later date and take them out and say, hey, this would be a cool idea. Why don't we mash it up with my idea um, that I've been playing on the guitar and then it becomes something new. So this sort of shared pool of melodic bits and a shared pool of lyrical bits um, would end up kind of fusing together to become group songs. Yeah. I, I noticed that the songwriting is all credited to Darling Side, the band, as opposed to 
different combinations of band members, which is not that common. This goes with what you're saying. I remember uh, R.E.M. did this. Their songs were always credited to Barry Buck, Mill Stipe. And I think this was a reflection on how they viewed themselves as a band. It was part of the ethos of the band itself. And I'm kind of getting that vibe from what you're talking about here. It's certainly served them well over a long career. Can maybe you talk a little bit more about how you view the project of Darling Side as an entity in this sense, that you're all kind of in this together, uh, part of one unit? Uh, yeah, that was a that was definitely a conscious decision early on when we first moved into a house together in Hadley, Massachusetts. We were um, all living in this shared space and cooking meals together in the evening, and it was right on the Connecticut River. It was a really nice first two years to being uh, a band together. And um, in that time, we were sort of formulating how we think of the group and how we write and how we share things and um, how we view this entity together. And I remember there was a group dinner um, when we were around the table and somebody was chatting about how um, how the way to really have a, a, a good long career where we can all care about this thing together is to split everything equally all the time and credit everything equally all the time no matter what. And part of that has to do with the fact that regardless of if some individual person came up with all of the lyrics and the entire tune of a song, the reason that they're able to go out and play it is because somebody else was working on promoting the show and somebody else was working on booking the show and somebody else was working on arranging the string parts for the song and the other people were working on practicing singing the parts and how to perform them live. And the idea that any individual would own the thing um, it would overlook sort of all of the really important critical work that's happening maybe behind the scenes that's allowing everything to move forward together. So part of that was trusting each other and giving the benefit of the doubt to every other member, sort of saying, no matter what, um, as long as we feel that everybody's here um, pulling equally hard for this thing that we care about, everybody owns everything equally all the time. Yeah, it's great. Um, now, you talked about 10 years of doing this and your ability to work together now, but how difficult was it for you individually at the beginning to bring your ideas to a group of three people? That's that's actually a lot of people in terms of exposing your creative self, right? Creation can be such a personal process. Was it difficult to learn to open yourself up and allow your ideas to be vetted, if you will, by, by three people? Yeah, that uh, is exactly right that it was very challenging at least for me at first um you know you can you can sort of be committed to the group being democratic and egalitarian in principle and then when it comes down to a specific idea that you just you're convinced that it's the right thing and you want to get it through somehow it, you know it does become it does feel like oh, i have to run the gauntlet of getting this by you know, I have to get Harris to sign off on it and Don has to sign off on it and Owen has to sign off on it. And, and you start thinking, oh, how, what's the right way to present it to Don so that he doesn't, you know, hate this idea that I think is perfect. Um, and then over time, you just, at least for me, that that way of thinking just dissolved into, a, uh, and maybe this wouldn't be the case in every group, but at least in our group, we developed so much trust in each other that you know, it just became, yeah, if, if Don doesn't like it, there's going to be a good reason. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean I'm wrong to like something if he doesn't like it. But 
um, but we haven't really been led astray by the the principle of uh, you know not not a hundred percent, but for the most part, um, decisions needing to be fairly unanimous. Um, you know there can there can definitely be some dissenting voices that you just you realize that you're you're overruled and and it's uh, time to let go of something or accept something. But uh, but certainly we all need to be comfortable with everything we write and we all need to be excited to perform it. Um, and and yeah, I think it's it's hard to say if that works in every group, but for us it it's just that that trust I think did take some time to develop, but then once it was there, um, you know, it's, it makes, it makes that whole process a breeze. Yeah. 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 I, I definitely running off of what, what Dave's saying there. Um, I know personally that especially early on with the group, I, I think that I was looking to, um, constantly make everybody happy all the time and to uh, be acknowledged especially out of the gate like if you're going to play a new idea in the room for somebody it's like you want them to immediately approve of it give acknowledgement give the stamp of approval everything's good to go and um, sort of a fear of rejection like if, if the idea is not good enough it's a personal fault and I think that especially over the past few years, I've noticed a, a growing comfort in myself. And I think um, partially just due to the trust with all the other guys of um, being comfortable with rejection or with failing or with presenting an idea and having somebody not like it and be OK with that and sort of say, OK, it's not a reflection on my personhood. It's not a reflection on whether or not I'm an okay songwriter or something it's just like this person sees things differently from me and now we can work to try to find common ground moving forward so i think just trying to get comfortable with um for me sharing things earlier and in an imperfect state right and i um i think dave actually in particular has helped me with this because he oftentimes will dig into my voice memos from my iphone and become pretty attached to certain very raw performances of song ideas while we're coming up with them. And um, these raw ideas would be things that I would usually be pretty uncomfortable, at least early on in the band, sharing with other people because my voice is cracking and I'm, you know, messing things up all over the place and it's totally not presentable um, in any fashion. And the fact that Dave likes those things um, is actually very reaffirming. It's like things don't need to be perfect when they're presented. They just need to be human and real and um, expressive. And so focusing on that and not being afraid of failing has been, I think, uh, especially in the last, for this album process, um, for Fish Pond Fish, I noticed that change in the way that I approach sharing things with the guys. Yeah, my personal motto um, has become... I. I was moved by the demo because I, I just ended up saying that in so many scenarios. But yeah, if I had one, if I had a role in the group creatively, um, it's probably that I'm, I'm most often the one to get attached to things the way they are and to say, we don't need to change it. It's perfect. It's great. Like I'm, I'm moved by it. Uh, and then it, you know, very often I'm overruled and, and the changes very often for the better. And then I, regret being the one who didn't want it to change so i'm i'm trying to i was trying really hard to reflect 
uh, on on that tendency this time around, and uh, I still ended up doing it a lot. But uh, but I'm trying to get more comfortable with uh, with the evolution that happens in each song. Yeah, I, I would imagine that that some of the fear and anxiety you might have early on in this in this creative life you've had together evolves into sometimes a feeling of power with the with the group and knowing that you have the support and the trust of of three other people like-minded people so um, it certainly shows and i i think that the way you all work together is certainly one of the signature qualities that you have as a band i mean it definitely shows that's that's not news i don't think to anybody out there um yeah the, the power the power you know, with great power comes great responsibility thing. Um, <laughs> definitely, I, I was talking to Owen about how I felt, looking back at older albums, the things that I had the hardest time, you know, it, regret is a strong word, but the things that I uh, regretted, I'll just use the word, um, were, were basically, you know, in terms of how the album came out, um, were almost across the board things that I had fought for and then decided that I was, you know, I, I was wrong at the time. So it doesn't take much of that before you start realizing, okay, maybe I need to not fight so hard and, you know, trust the other guys a little bit more. And, hmm. um, and there are still times that, that you fight, but it's, it's very helpful to go in with that sort of uh, wariness over, um, you know, taking a strong stand and knowing that that, you, that you, if you're going to use that power, because you know you, we're, we're four equal voices, so people are going to listen to you and they're going to trust you. But if you're mm -hmm. going to take a stand, it, it better be one that you, you know, feel good about. Not that you know it's okay to make bad decisions and or decisions that you regret. But um, but I think that's been a really important part of, for me, yeah, letting letting my individual, you know, power uh, in, in the group, trying to be responsible with it. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I'd like to shift gears here a bit. I want to talk about live performance. You, I'm sure you, you remember that from some time ago. Vaguely, yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a blur. Bittersweet subject, but certainly worth discussing with, uh, with Darling's side. Um, it's something we have to look forward to. I've seen you all perform uh, several times. I have to say shows are among the more entertaining I've seen, and I've seen a lot of shows. I, I think most of my listeners know I'm, I'm an older person. Um, but I'm, by entertaining, I mean that kind of uh, holistically, the entire package of what you're doing on stage, no small part of which is what goes on between the songs. So can you talk about what a good live performance means to you, what it is you all are trying to accomplish when you, when you give a live show? I um, Wow, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> I usually care a lot about authenticity and 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 really um getting this impression that everybody's uh spending time together in the room as a community and um that we are being ourselves and spending time with the room in the same way that we would be spending time with each other as friends and um i remember when we first started out as a band we would plan what we were saying between the songs sort of talking portions of and here's where I get this point across and things like that. And it, it felt very stilted. It didn't have a sort of natural flow to it. And I think part of that songwriting process, this idea of sharing and sharing things equally, having that carry through to the shows where the four of us should be sort of um, 
sharing what the group feels like with the room and bringing people along for for the journey both with the songs and the time in between that we spend together um uh, to me um, my favorite shows are not necessarily the ones where we play the songs most accurately or where the sound is the best although that doesn't hurt at all i think those allow us to relax and um just sort of share ourselves authentically with people and um tap into the energy of the room in a sort of seamless way um so for me yeah um that kind of comfort and experience from start to finish of the show um doesn't matter whether it's music being made or the time in between the music um the whole evening should just be a community experience Mm -hmm. yeah i found i have two really distinct mindsets that i am in when i'm performing and figuring out how to get in the the good mindset is is like the the great challenge of my whole or has been the the challenge of my performing career but it's it's basically whether i'm focusing on not making mistakes or or whether i'm you know in a in a more just a the mindset of yeah i'm just presenting this song that i wrote and i'm sharing it with people right uh and i and i probably make roughly the same amount of mistakes either way it's just whether my my orientation is like that i'm dwelling on the last mistake i made and i'm fearing the next one or or am i you know i'm just in the space in between those moments where i'm uh, maybe i make a mistake but it, they just go by and um yeah it's 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 almost like the the pigeon pecking experiment where the the pigeons when they get when they get rewarded at random intervals, you know, they start, they just, they become really superstitious and they try to figure out what did I do? Right. Why, how did I get <laughs> rewarded? Um, and so sometimes I'm like, what, what was it that I, was it that I had a drink right before the show? Is it that I didn't have a drink before the show? Is it that I didn't eat spicy food or did eat spicy food? And I was like, what is, and you're like constant. I mean, early on, early on, especially, yeah, it was, I was constantly like playing mind games with myself about what was, you know, what was making me feel better or worse on stage. And, those things kind of just over time, they, they dissipate. And, um, but you still find yourself having really off nights and trying to figure out what it was that, that got you there. And uh, I, I don't suspect I will have it figured out anytime soon. Harris, just to follow up in case for some of our listeners that haven't had the chance to see one of your shows, you talked about the community and the time between the songs. What, what I have seen happen is basically, akin to like a good improv show that talking between <laughs> the songs right it's like you seem to pick a thread something that maybe happened on the road that week somebody wanted coffee or lost their frisbee or something and then throughout the show different members kind of riff on that theme possibly poking fun at one another it is really well done obviously it's a product of, of the years you all have spent together but the comedic touch and the timing are really I think it's quite deft. I think you guys have have a gift here for this. Um, oh, thank you. <laughs> is that something that has just developed over time on its own, or is that like a, a, a conscious effort to say, here's how we're going to do this? Uh, yeah, I think it developed naturally when we, um, uh, a few years into being a band, we moved to a four-piece without drums and kind of recontextualized the way we were performing live from uh, sort of more of a rock concert vibe to a living room vibe um and i think that it happened we went to the folk alliance international folk alliance in kansas city um back in dave do you remember that year it was like 2013 maybe 
13, maybe? Dave and I were yeah. talking about this right before we recorded, actually. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, the, that was... Um, it keeps popping up. That was when we were sort of trying to figure out um, a more, um, I, would, I would say, a, a stripped sort of approach to our sound, where the vocals and the vocal harmonies were coming to the forefront of what we were doing and quieting down the instrumentation and simplifying it in many senses and allowing the songwriting and the words and the singing to come through. And um, we were playing in the hotel rooms there um, at the conference center where um, the Folk Alliance is held in, in Kansas City. And in the hotel rooms, you know, you don't have amplifiers and no microphones, and it's a tiny room where people are packed in there. Sometimes it's like 40 people jamming into a little, you know, a hotel room with two queen beds. And we were playing the songs there um, and hanging out and talking in between the songs while we were tuning and setting up and just spending time with people. And we were seeing uh, really great response at those shows people way more engaged from start to finish um and i think it had more to do with just what is the content of the melodies that we're singing how are our voices coming together and who are we as people and how are we sharing ourselves with people not um uh, and connecting and talking with people like actually having a conversation rather than just you know i think the years before that i had been very focused on sort of the especially the instrumental arrangement side of things and constantly thinking, what are we doing, you know, as a rock band to present this kind of bombastic, strong performance? And really when we just kind of turned everything down and acted as ourselves, I shouldn't even say acted, just when we were ourselves (laughs) rather than acting, um, realized that um, it was not only more enjoyable for us, but that people responded to it better. And I think the the banter, like the hanging out in between songs, developed from there, sort of um, partially because we have so many alternate tunings and capoings Mm -hmm. and instrument switches uh, with people playing multiple different things that we actually just have tons of dead time between songs and needed to figure out what to do uh, from a just sort of a technical standpoint to uh, or logistical standpoint I should say to fill in between the songs and um, and also just we would have these conversations in the van um, on the way to the show where we'd be usually drilling down on some sort of subject you know it's like somebody misused a word and now we're going into the etymology of that word and it had to do with some menu order that somebody had from some carryout spot and it, it you know we'll carry on in the van sometimes for 30 minutes an hour on those types of things and you know we we oftentimes have 30 minutes of dead time between songs at a show so we just kind of continue to do that on stage and uh, uh it turns out people um sometimes want to hear <laughs> relatively mundane things um when we're um sharing them with each other yeah i i can tell you it's it's very entertaining and i think it's not just that the topics are mundane or not mundane but it's the interplay between you and like you say you're you're being yourselves up there it's interesting that you can draw a direct line back to the hotel rooms at the uh, folk alliance conference for the genesis of, of this kind of approach i want to get to the album Fish Pond Fish. I really love this album. The dynamics of it, the range of kind of calm and energetic feels. The production is so great. 
it seems to go places for you as a band, go new places for you as a band, while still, of course, sounding like a Darling Side record. Um, you must be very proud of how it came out. Um, I understand for this record, I think I read somewhere, that, and you mentioned earlier, actually, in this conversation, you did a lot of lyric writing first before Melodies, which was kind of a change from previous albums. Do I have that right? Yeah, um, yeah, that's correct. Yeah, so did you find this process resulting directly like in the lyrics informing the music, kind of setting the musical moods, tempos, that kind of thing, rather than reverse happening before where the music kind of maybe led you to certain lyrics? Can you talk about kind of the directional interplay between lyrics and music that might, might have been different this time? I'm going to let you take that, Harris, since uh, I think oh. the majority of the tunes that really went in that direction, I feel like Harris had a hand in, in writing the melodies for at least three that I can think of. Okay. Yeah, those, um, are you, are you were thinking like uh, Denver and... Um... I'm sure a lot of those melodies were ones you already had bouncing around, and, and so maybe it was just a matter of playing matchmaker and... Um, but yeah, I, I was thinking of Denver, and uh, I think the "See You Change" melody wasn't was or was that oh, one yeah, that you yeah. already had? Around? Oh yeah, those those did not exist in any in any way before the lyrics set. Um, and so yeah, it was new to kind of take the words and try to build, you know, take the words, pick up a guitar, and try to build from scratch um, without any melody in mind. There were a few where. You know, like I was saying before, where we have a whole bank of voice memos and old melodic bits, and then we have a whole bank of lyrics and, you know, exercises with words. And you can kind of, like Dave's saying, match make, where it's let me rifle through 12 different voice memos and see if any of these match the cadence of the words from this writing exercise. Mm -hmm. um, and a few of the songs ended up that way. Um, but there were other ones that that did truly um, just grow directly out of the lyrics. Uh, yeah, Denver's an example of that on the back half of the record. And um, it was fun. I actually enjoyed um, writing a bunch of melodies really quickly from any given lyric set. So for Denver, um, I think... Dave, did you do the free write for Denver, or was that Oyen? I was not involved at all in Denver. That's that was my my task in that one was coming in uh, at the end and saying it's done. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, I recall that yeah, that you just basically st yeah jumped in and said Which nobody touch nobody to touch anything, just freeze <laughs> and play the song again. So the um, as is my way. Which is an, a very important voice in our group. Um, right. <laughs> otherwise, we can keep on permuting until the end of time. Um, but it's either somebody says it's done or a deadline forces us to stop. But, um, yeah, basically, um, Oyen did a free write. Don took that free write and turned it into a a verse. And he was sort of thinking of like almost like a Western-style song. It had this sort of take-me-back-to-Denver, kind of sad, lonesome cowboy vibe to it. And when he first gave me those lyrics, I sort of was pumping out these almost like Jackson Brown types of like, take me back to south of Denver, you know, kind of these right. Denver, these like things that were a place where I was me, or kind of like old classic um, singer songwriter uh, tunes. And then I went into thinking of some more almost like pop rock melodic stuff. 
And then after a little while, uh, landed on the voice memo that ended up becoming the current melody. And, um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed the process of, like, almost quickly trying different, um, what would you call it, like, melodic clothing on the lyric set. <laughs> it was like, try this shirt on. Nope, that doesn't fit. Try this one on. Nope. And then eventually something would match it. Um, it was, we actually had another yeah. melody that came uh, out of all of the uh, wardrobe changes there that <laughs> I, I remember we were we were kind of tempted to use that melody instead. The take me back to south, south of Denver. Denver. That's the place where I was me. Feels like I've been dead forever and forever I will be. Yeah, it was sort of like a little more of a kind of a minor um folky thing um and yeah maybe that'll eventually become a tune as well <laughs> it's sort of a <laughs> or an outtake version i mean i can just record that and put it out for you the b-side <laughs> if you want sure sure yeah i guess uh it i should say that any time in the creative process that we can kind of get out of a rut um you know or get out of a lane that we're driving down and starting yeah. to get comfortable in i think is really nice yeah and um i had started to get maybe a little too comfortable in you know sit down with a guitar kind of sing a falsetto tune over it for a while you know maybe bring that to some of the guys develop that into a, a bigger idea match it up with another chorus you know now we have a very specific set of syllables that we have to write to and then it becomes kind of like a math problem where it's like there are seven syllables in the first part of the verse and it has this rhyme scheme let's fit words to it right and that still happens every now and then but um you know having words that we cared about um that didn't have any particular tune attached to it and then letting the tune spill out of that i think was a really uh, freeing thing uh, I know at least for me I, 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 I liked changing up the process and I also really liked the time spent um, together as a group just you know kind of the the group vibe of hanging out together and writing words and not worrying about uh, finished product or which song is this going to go to or anything it just allowed us to kind of share our feelings and enjoy um, writing together in in um, for those few months that we were just writing lyrics, I, I, I know that I personally uh, was, was uh, that was like a high point creatively um, when I look back at the past few years. Yeah, that's great. I can squeeze a line with one hand, but I'm still dead as the talk about the song ocean bed and i want to talk about uh, percussion on this record on your previous albums i always thought a lot of your songs had a percussive element to them which was kind of interesting because there's very little actual drums on the songs it was more of like a bluegrass feel of using the strings as percussion right but now on this album we have drums right and there's a lot of percussive stuff happening on this song so can you talk about the song ocean bed in terms of the use of drums on the album yeah, that was a very fun one to put together. Um, there, there are more different types of percussion, uh, you know, in, in air quotes, percussion um, on that song than I think we've ever uh, really played with before. 
uh, including my dog barking <laughs> at some points. Um, there's a there's a broken washing machine, or well, I guess it's not. It wasn't broken. It was just very enthusiastically working. Um, <laughs> and uh, I recorded it with my iPhone. It's, it was actually in the, the house I'm in currently. My my in-laws. Uh, washing machine and I, it was just doing this awesome tumbling like you know like something was uh, clearly jostling around and um, and so I just recorded that on the iPhone and we ended up using that um, there's a clap track that involves uh, and Harris and Don I think put that together with a number of you know body percussion and claps and that kind of thing and then there's a full drum kit um, that comes in at certain points and I feel like I'm leaving out at least one or two more things. But that was just for us having that, um, for the whole album, having the percussion. I don't think we, you know, I, I at least personally went in not expecting there to be a lot of drum kit on the album, but definitely wanting there to be a lot more percussion. Um, and then our friend Ben Burns uh, came over to my house and rehearsed with us one afternoon and uh, just you know, we had sent him a bunch of the songs and said, come over and let's try out some percussion ideas. And basically everything he did was gold. I mean, we just, it was so exciting uh, that it ended up being on almost every song. I think uh, maybe there are two songs on the record that don't have drum kit of some kind. So uh, it was just a, it was a really, really fun part of this process for us that was totally different from the last couple of records yeah yeah um, and going off what dave said there with um when ben came over to his house to rehearse we ended up just sticking up one microphone in the room in front of the drum kit and just capturing a bunch of the sounds while he was making stuff up on the spot and a lot of the final tracks on the record are just that single microphone capturing him making things up with us in the room um yeah, because the, I think just the vibes of it were, were just right. It didn't have to be a hi-fi sound when it's mixed with, you know, the sound of a washing machine and a dog and things like that. It was just right. the energy of of his ideas that informed a lot of the, uh, the sculpting of the songs um, across the record. And also for Ocean Bed, I think it began with just a little, um, was that a little voice memo from Don where he was just playing um, he was slapping his knees into a microphone um, and then he quantized it on his computer he was just rapidly basically um, drum rolling on his knees and he um, snapped it into a grid to see what would happen and then it just popped out this kind of um, skittering beat and then he took that and copy pasted it and built this um, melodic loop on top of it that ended up being the motif of the song that dun 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 that cycles over the top of that. Um, and he thought it sounded sort of aquatic, and so he called the memo "Chattering Ocean Bed," and then um, that grew into whatever it is with its many percussive things now. Stay, I think. Might be underwater in a sea creature's dream, in a dreaming dream. No, there's no time for the end over end and everything to do before dying again. Stay, I think. 
back to uh, lyrics for a second. It is clear that you all take a lot of time and care with your lyric writing, but I get the sense that this effort is not just choosing words that create the right imagery, but that the words themselves are chosen based on how they how they sound, right? How they sing. I'm kind of reminded of Andrew Bird a little bit here. We hear words and phrases you generally might not find in a, in a song, in a folk song particularly, but they really kind of strike the ears well. They're great hooks. So um, is that a big part of what's happening in the creative process lyrically for you all? Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, definitely something I think a lot about, um, maybe because of my, uh, as I said, coming from kind of a, an acapella background. Right. Um, that the especially I guess when words are sung in harmony, um, the vowel sound matters a lot. And there's a very different thing to singing an ooh than singing an ah or singing an a. And, and so if you're holding out a word on a particular vowel that, that has the wrong feel, it just, then it's the wrong word. Um, and that said, I think you can also play with that and, and end up trying to subvert it and, and sing vowels that sound a little strange or sing words where you accent the wrong syllable or you know i think it's not that there's a right way to do it it's just that every note every every vowel sound or or consonant sound just has a flavor and and it's important especially i think in group singing um but maybe in general i don't i don't know that that's a group thing necessarily but that's Mm -hmm. how i think of it um just just a it's an important element it's like um you know the words are are almost instruments in that sense, like that the, the language is an instrument. To, uh, if you you can you can sort of choose to play it or not, but um, but it's one that we definitely think about. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the lyrics to another song, "Green and Evergreen." Um, here we have like theme of time passing. So some of the lyrics: "I was growing, I was dying, dark and getting darker soon." I also pick up kind of an underlying corresponding musical theme, kind of an urgent driving beat here that kind of matches, at least to me, that kind of anxiety about time passing. Um, and the drums are driving again, the drums drums on this song. Can you talk about this song a little bit now that I've babbled about it? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think uh, I appreciate what you're saying about it. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, that one uh, that one actually took a long time to, to come together. Um, it went through just a bunch of different phases of, I mean, it ended up being like two song ideas sort of coming together to become the verse of the song. And um, then it was this wide open slow beat. And then when Ben came to play drums uh, on that, day we were experimenting with him at Dave's house, um, he played this subdivided rolling snare beat that recontextualized the song, um, and then a slow strumming nylon part that I had played, I put through a few delay effects, and it turned into this, and a distortion, and it turned into this kind of um, distorted, um, jittery sound when combined with the snare that made the whole song kind of... um, flutter or or something right. there's uh, definitely a flutter in there yeah yeah um or at least stutter uh, <laughs> i guess it, um and then um the chorus is served as sort of a clearing from that um just like a little bit of a breath and then everything dropping back in choruses came together really late in the process for us on that song um i think um 
the final week, basically. Is that right, Dave? Like the last week of mixing, we recorded those choruses in and got them into place um, after the pandemic had hit and we were on separate recording setups at our separate houses and still talking about what the lyrics of the chorus would be. <laughs> it was sort of yeah, a, uh, yeah. uh, it was very inefficient, but um, ended up coming together. I think that like the, the song ended up every now and then there's a song where the lyrics are self-fulfilling. It's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy in the songwriting process where it's like, I was growing, I was dying, and you're sitting there late at night being like, I feel that right now. I'm like, I'm yes. about to pass out. <laughs> or like, uh, or on this one, the things will change and change again, like theme of time passage and, and sort of repetitive cycling, like pouring back over the same thing over and over again, but it it altering um, over time and things getting comfortable with change. I think the song almost ended up like, uh, the the creative process and the recording of it was like a reflection of the lyrics themselves. It was folding in like a fractal or something. <laughs> the orchid poison ivy As the lemon light was alkaline I was growing, I was dying Growing, I was dying talk about another song here, Crystal Caving, one of my favorites on the record. Then you were talking about the lyrics and, and how they reflect on what's happening. I know that some of the work on this album was done before the quarantine and then some near the, uh, later. And I, it's kind of interesting to listen to this album and kind of figure out what might have been before or not. So, for example, this lyric, Natural and the Disasters and Everything After. Um, Natural and Disasters, by the way, I think would be a great band name for your next project. <laughs> But that lyric kind of stood out to me, and I was kind of wondering uh, how this song came about and whether that was a prediction or maybe a reflection on what was happening. Your questions are so thoughtful and great, and in this case, actually, just so entirely on the nose, because uh, we were questioning whether we could use that lyric, because uh, some, at least somebody in the band thought it sounded too much like a band name. Um, <laughs> Uh, so yeah, yeah that's, that, that was Don. Yeah, yeah, Don was. <laughs> well, tell him I've got dibs. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, that was all pre pre uh, pandemic that that was written. Um, and so there there were a few things that you know they took on new meanings once the pandemic happened, and uh, in, in kind of an interesting way, it felt yeah. like you know it was strange to finish up the album during the pandemic, but most of the writing um as you said happened beforehand so so we did some uh certainly did some retroactive uh, you know saying oh actually i guess this is about this now right um yeah yeah it's funny sometimes you can look back on the song five or seven years later and it might mean something different to you but this was kind of happening in real time with some of these for you all natural and the disaster Every 
Let's talk about sense of place in your music. You all met at school in Massachusetts, and now I, almost all of you call that area home. At least you all did for a long time, right? There, there seems to be a scene or a vibe in that general area of like-minded musicians. I know um, just from the roster of people I've, we've had on the show, Western Den, Ballroom Thieves, Lula Wiles, Heather Maloney, David Wax Museum, they've all come from that area. And I find that pretty interesting. How do you think this sense of place makes it makes its way into your music and your creative lives? You just named a lot of wonderful artists and, <laughs> and good friends of ours that we've yeah. toured with. I think, have we toured with everybody that you just named for a lot of them, sometimes for months or years? And they all um, have roots or associations with the greater Massachusetts area, am I right? Absolutely, yeah, because yeah. we met in uh, you know the town that's the furthest uh, northwestern point in the state and then moved east uh, to Central Mass in, in the valley and then moved east to um, to the Boston area. And so, yeah, very connected to the land and, you know, kind of the entire state um, from east to west there. And, um, yeah, the the community, I think, I really appreciate, yeah, a strong um, sort of sense of... Um, yeah, I should say sense of community, places like Club Passim um, mm-hmm. that are in Harvard Square where they've been supportive of, of folk and singer-songwriter music um, for decades now. And there's a continued tradition in that vein um, in in Massachusetts. And there's also sort of a coffee house culture, um, this idea of we're going to a meeting house or a coffee house and um and performing so this kind of community built around folk music and at the same time that there's that traditional um scene i find that most of the artists from the area are willing to experiment a good amount and take music in new directions and try to kind of um take folk music and folk sounds into into a new era or a a new realm Mm -hmm. and so all the artists that you that you named are people who are doing that and um, i think that's been encouraging for us to find that there's um both a community for playing just a straightforward you know folk folk song in, in a traditional format and singing harmony on it and then also um an appreciation for jumping off the deep end a bit and experimenting and that you can find a home it's sort of like people are uh not as much drawing lines on genre as much as they are just saying are you a good person are you writing songs that you care about and are they sounding nice and now let's go on tour together right okay i i uh, appreciate you taking the time i want to i want to ask one more kind of broad question about the album before we finish up here i believe from what I read about the making of this album, the entire recording process, there was a part of it at the beginning that was more intensely together than you had done before, right? Living at the studio kind of together for the first part of the record. And then eventually at the end, more separate than in the past, right? Because you literally were quarantined in separate places as you finished the record. So when you, now that you've had some time to reflect and listen to the record now, the completed work, can you get a sense of those divergent methods? Do they speak to you as you listen to it, or is it more of a of a unified whole? I am very connected to the songs on this record because 
they are an actual record. They're like a snapshot of a bunch of different things happening to us over a period of time. Right. And um, certain songs you can really hear sort of like, here is the initial demo where we're making it up at Dave's house, and then here is us hanging out in the studio together working it with all the production elements and then and you know the full drum kit and then here is trying to figure out how to sing the other parts you know when we're stuck at home during the pandemic and having each of those imprints on a song to me it's like the song has all these layers of um meaning and experience that kind of um are like stamped on on the tune (laughs) and um like a song like february stars that's uh i think it begins side b um the whole outro like the um the section called stars all of the singing um i think did all the singing happen after the fact dave or like your part had gone down i think before the pandemic hit and then all the crafting of the harmonies we did by just passing it around and saying like just layer up on it and see what happens and um and sort of the outro of the song is um it's like the the piece of the pandemic section of our lives almost tacked on to the back side of the song it's like it's like a tale um and that tells that story um yeah. so i know that i enjoy um hearing that contour across the record i don't know if anybody else can hear that except for us <laughs> like right. uh if if um if the nuances are too subtle but for me i can pick up or maybe it's just knowing the slight differences the um i can hear that kind of story there yeah i i think you've created something like you say that is kind of a snapshot i mean when you look now back at your catalog this will be the record that is a a, a document of this insane period that we have all lived through and you recorded and created through i think it makes the record all that more interesting uh, to the listener uh, thank you for that um and you know, technically, I think you pulled off an amazing stunt getting it done and, and, and sounding so cohesive. So my hat is off to you for that also. Thank you. I almost uh, lost my mind. I don't know how you fared, Dave, but I, <laughs> I, uh, I was in headphones during the mixing phase. We all were for days on end, and I, I like it took like a toll on my emotional health. I, I, I came out of it kind of uh, confused also because we were deepening into the pandemic quarantine time and i just came out of it like what has occurred <laughs> i don't know <laughs> yeah i think my my peak crazy uh was when I, I i didn't trust myself enough uh we were comparing different bounces of things uh and you know like it, it would be version a has this compressor and version b has this compressor which already is like a level of subtlety that i'm not that attuned to but right. I, I was trying my best to participate and and develop um, an opinion and but i but i knew that i if i knew which one i was listening to that was going to color my thoughts because this happens all the time where you know you'll tell a, an engineer like hey could you turn me down a little bit great that's great thanks and they'll say i didn't do anything yet <laughs> um, and you're constantly like playing these mind games of did that change did it not change what is there is it doing anything is it real um and uh so i had to like make myself this sort of blind double blind I don't, I don't even know what that means that's just a term i've heard um like a blind <laughs> test where Science. i i changed all the names of the files and then i i made it so the and the file names were hidden 
so that I couldn't tell which file I was playing and I had to make like 30 copies so that because otherwise I would kind of know which one it was so and then I managed to develop an extremely strong opinion about which compressor I liked better <laughs> well whatever you did it worked I'm gonna I'm gonna let you guys go we went a little over time so I appreciate your your sticking out with me uh I really enjoyed talking with you both, Harris and Dave. I know you've done a lot of talking about this amazing record over the last couple of months and are really looking forward to when you get to stop talking about it and start playing the songs live. We're all looking forward to that, too. Um, so thanks, both of you, for, for taking the time and for sharing your music with the world. Thank you so much, Mike. Yeah, thanks so much for having us and really appreciate getting to chat with you. Okay, guys. Okay, guys.